Well, good morning. You guys look very nice. Good to see you. My name is Pete Ferrara. It's a real joy to be with you guys this morning and to open up God's Word with you. Uh, before, I want to, before I do, I want to tell you a quick little story. So I lead a shepherd group, and a while back, our shepherd group uh, was going to take a trip to Chick-fil-A. There's a fundraiser going on for adoption. Uh, so great biblical cause. We're super excited about it. Uh, but my, my group used this as a way to play a prank on me, which is like, come on, guys, what are you doing? They had found out that I don't like to wear sweatpants in public. Just kind of the way I was raised, I feel like you're basically taking a blanket and tying it around your waist and walking outside. In my opinion, the only thing that you are sweating when you wear sweatpants is how fast you can get back into bed. I just feel like you've basically given up. Anyway, so my group, <laughs> that's the biblical message for this morning. That part's my opinion. But my group decided, well, we're all going to wear sweatpants and then Pete will be so embarrassed. But my thought is, well, you guys are the ones that could be embarrassed you're wearing sweatpants in public. And so I found out about this, and like any good shepherd group leader, when they go low, I'm going to go high. So I figured I'm going to wear my tuxedo to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so I did. I said, I'm going to wear my tuxedo, and I'm going to show you guys that it's way better to be underdressed, way better to be overdressed than it is to be underdressed. And so we go there, and we're at Chick-fil-A, and I show up in my tuxedo, and I'm really happy, and they start laughing. And I'm like, well, whatever, it's better than sweatpants. And they go, no, did, did you see over there? And I look over, and it's not just a fundraising for adoption, which again is wonderful. We're so glad we're there. It's also a family entertainment night. So they have brought in some children's entertainment in the form of a children's magician. Yes. So this guy's wearing my tuxedo, basically. The only way to tell the difference between us is that he has a top hat on and probably a bouquet of flowers up his shoulders. And my face looks like it has already been painted red, like it is just done and over. So I want to separate myself from this guy as much as possible. I'm like, I'll hide in a corner, I'll put a tarp over me. And I'm like, I just don't want, you know, kids are going to come up and be like, make me a balloon animal or make one of my chicken nuggets disappear. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do. So I'm like, I just want to climb inside that guy's top hat and disappear forever. Um, because what I had on was identifying me in a way that I just couldn't handle. I, I just, I didn't have, I was like, it was over. So sweatpants won the day. Uh, but there's a biblical principle at play here, and that's what I want to look at this morning uh, with the book of Zechariah. So Zechariah is one of my favorites. I hear some of you guys turning there. Uh, it is, uh, so if you start with Matthew, you can just go back to books, Malachi, and then you'll hit Zechariah. But a friend of mine once asked me what I thought the most underappreciated book of the Bible was, and my brain went immediately to Zechariah. It's just not one that you hear a lot about, but there's so much in there about the gospel. There's so much in there about God's singular message from Genesis to Revelation that takes a great footing in Zechariah. We studied this book within my shepherd group, all those people who wore sweatpants, and we really thought about, this is a New Testament book. It doesn't feel like, you know, you hear over and over again, people say, well, I don't know, the, the God of the Hebrew Bible doesn't seem to match up with what I see in Jesus. You cannot read through Zechariah and feel that way. It's just so consistent with that message, a clear picture of God's grace. Um, and I'm going to read just a few uh, verses coming out of Zechariah that show you, like you, you will hear these and these will resonate with New Testament passages. Um, but this is God's singular message, and it's for us this morning as well. 
Here are a couple things that come out of Zechariah that you probably didn't know came out of Zechariah. It's in Zechariah that we read, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt on the fold of the donkey. Zechariah tells us about the cornerstone, uh, the hope of Judah and the good shepherd who cares for his flock. He mentions 30 pieces of silver paid out to the prophet, thrown to the house of the Lord and to the potter. In Zechariah, God speaks firsthand. This is God speaking. And he says, When they look upon me, upon him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. If we don't see Jesus so clearly in those passages, we're missing it. Um, so the context of Zechariah at this time, just briefly, this is a post-exilic book. So this is a lot of Israel coming back to Jerusalem, uh, having been allowed. They've been there for about a generation, but they haven't really done anything with that time. And so the message of Zechariah and Haggai, who's a contemporary of him, is, guys, it's time to rebuild. It's time to return to me. It's time to put emphasis on the house of God. Um, and it's time to have a way for him, again, to be present with his people. And that's a lot of what we're going to look at. So we're going to be in the third chapter of Zechariah this morning. Um, and Zechariah has been given a set of visions, and this is one of them. But it's a great illustration of how we present ourselves to God. Um, to a certain degree to man as well. But mostly this is uh, a little bit of a style guide, if you were, on how we can be presentable to God. Um, so we're going to begin in Zechariah 3. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and then we'll pray. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. It is, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. Let's pray. God, I want you uh, to be big here this morning. I want this to be your show and not mine. Uh, so Lord, we want your word to come first. Uh, so we pray that you give us ears to, to hear. We pray you give me words to speak that are your words, uh, because we want to be uh, glorifiers of you um, and not ourselves. Help that to happen this morning. Amen. So let's set the, the tone here. Let's set the context as we're looking at this. Zechariah actually has quite a few visions. At the end of them, he literally says, I don't know what I'm seeing. Can you explain it to me? So we're going to get to do that through Zechariah 3 as well. So first, let's start with Joshua. This is a different Joshua than the book of Joshua, which you might be familiar with, which is kind of funny because Jason Van Dorsen uh, just led us through a passage with, with Joshua last week. So we're doing a very strange two-part series on the Joshuas of the Bible, so stay with me on that. In this case, he is the high priest of Israel. So he is the priest who basically is in charge of the, the ceremonies of purification for all of Israel. And that'll play into this message quite a bit. So he's the high priest of God. Uh, to the next of him is Satan. That's comforting, right? We can all kind of just relax. Satan's there. Uh, so Satan here, the title means accuser. Um, so literally in Hebrew, if you read this, it would say, and the accuser was there to accuse. So this is the Satan that we all have kind of remember throughout Scripture because he's been the accuser since Genesis 3. Um, he accused God of not wanting what was best for Adam and Eve and saying, no, 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 he doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he's telling you not to eat the, fr the, the fruit of that tree. You should go ahead and do it. And here, he's basically accusing Joshua of heeding that bad advice in Genesis 3 and saying, this guy rebelled against you, which, which was exactly what he was advocating earlier. So this vision kind of feels 
very much like a courtroom setting, uh, you are spot on. That's, that's exactly what we're, what we're coming into. Um, and who's the judge? We have this title given, the angel of the Lord. This is a very different title in Scripture than if you were to use the word an angel of the Lord, as in any. This is the angel of the Lord, and it's used in a very specific setting throughout Scripture. Um, they all kind of have a pattern. The, the most notable is probably in Exodus 3. This is where Moses comes upon the burning bush, and it actually notes that it's the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses. Uh, and then it switches quickly and says the Lord, and he identifies himself as the Lord. He says, I'm the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he tells Moses to take his shoes off, for he is on holy ground. So you kind of think, well, what's going on there? There's a similar situation that takes place with Hagar in Genesis 21. She is there and, and has this interaction with the angel of the Lord, but it, the text again switches to speaking for God in first hand. And then she walks away from that thinking, I have seen the Lord and lived. And that's the pattern that we see in Scripture, to be able to see the Lord and live. When you see the angel of the Lord, it's a way for God to be tangible to His people who are not clean and yet remain clean Himself. So if you take something that's clean and something that's dirty and you put them together, the dirt wins every time. So this is a way for God to be in the midst of His people in a tangible way and yet remain clean. It's pretty important here. So it fits well with this courtroom setting, right? Because you have somebody who's on trial and who is unclean. Um, now, I've had to stand before a judge in the past, and what I wore was pretty important. I was 17 years old, I had a speeding ticket, but I wanted my dress code to communicate very clearly, very early, that I was presentable, that I was respectable, that I appreciated the judge and the police officers that were in that room and all the court officials. I wanted that to speak for me even when I could not speak. Because clothes are really a form of visual self-representation. It's kind of like a visual resume that we have on. Even before we can speak, our clothes are saying something about us. Think about a uniform that someone has on. That gives us context to who this person is and what their job is. Um, but even our day-to-day -day dress code tells something about us uh, and, and kind of communicates who we are for a certain degree. That's why I chose, you might not believe it, but I chose what I wore this morning. And I chose that for two, for two there's laughter. I chose that for two reasons. <laughs> One is uh, because I, I wanted you to know that I take the role of preaching God's Word seriously. Hence, I'm not wearing sweatpants. That would really be a bad idea. But I also wanted to know that I take the Word of God seriously, so I don't want this message to be about me, which is why I'm not wearing a tuxedo. Point, point, point. So, and I want to kind of go through a few things because this is, that's how I want to be identified this morning. Before I even said a word, I want you to know that importance. But I wanted to kind of show a few examples of my wardrobe and kind of how they express something about me, just briefly. This is a beautiful corduroy jacket. It has leather patches on the, slot, on the side. Uh, very cool. I think this thing is awesome, and my wife hates it. She thinks it's terrible. She finds it pretentious. I think it makes me come off looking like a college professor who's got his act together, which I am not. So that's why I like to wear it. Uh, a couple others. This is a sweatshirt from my high school, Gonzaga, that's in D.C. I'm actually pretty careful about where I wear this because if you know anything about Gonzaga, it is an all-male Jesuit private school that's in D.C. I had to take a test to get in there. I had to pass that test, uh, and it was not free. Uh, and so a lot of people look at that and say, oh, that guy went to Gonzaga. I can make some assumptions 
about him. I can make assumptions about his family. I can make assumptions about how he views other people, even. And so I wear this carefully because um, I don't want to be associated necessarily with some of the ideas that would come out of attending that school. There are a couple other things that I do want to be associated with, and one is my family. So I have quite a few shirts that have my name on them. I, I wear them a lot. Uh, I like them. I think they're awesome uh, because I'm proud of my family. <laughs> I do. I think it's great. I also wear the shirts that bear the resemblance of my heroes. So I have a lot of shirts that have Lincoln on them, I have quite a few. Um, and then I also have shirts that bear the resemblance of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. These are people that are my heroes that I look up to, and I think these are people that I want to be associated with because of the phenomenal work that they have done. So our clothes, to a certain extent, are ways that we identify with that uh, and how we pour ourselves into that. So let's take a look at Joshua's outfit, see how he's doing. You could look at the biblical narratives for, for clothes that people wear, and they speak something as well. Uh, Joshua, as a high priest, could have been wearing the outfit prescribed for him in the Torah. Very detailed gems, all this stuff going on about who he is and what his job is supposed to do. He does not have that on. Uh, he could have been wearing a cloak of many colors, maybe, that represented the uh, affinity of his, of his dad. Uh, but he doesn't have that on. He could have had fig leaves on. He could have had a purple sash on. He could have had... Um, I mean, camel's hair garb on, but he doesn't have any of these on. In fact, it's probably the worst depiction of someone's clothes in the Bible, at least that I can think of. Uh, the passage says that he's wearing filthy clothes. I would say that's a pretty generous translation if you look at the original language. Um, it, English makes it a lot more palatable, but basically what we're talking about here is a shirt that's covered in excrement. Uh, and if you think about this, it's bad enough. You think, man, I'd never want to wear something like that. But remember who this is. This is the high priest. And wearing excrement, wearing soiled garment, makes you immediately unclean before the Lord. Immediately. So his visual representation, he's not wearing a suit, as I was when I was in front of a court. He's wearing a sewer. He looks as bad as he can. And if you remember, this is the role of the high priest. So this is a guy who's supposed to represent us before the Lord in purification ceremonies. It'd kind of be like you walking into your doctor's office and he, <clears throat> he coughs a little bit and says, oh, sorry, I have a little case of swine flu. I got a little Ebola. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm fine. No, this guy can't do his job. It's like as if you went into a courtroom and your lawyer is standing next to you and you go, what are you doing on this side of the bar? He says, oh yeah, I got convicted for perjury. Not a big deal. We're going to be fine. You just can't do your job in this situation well. So for Satan, this is a dream case. He's got God's high priest who represents the rest of his people and has the evidence as a shirt on his back that he's unfit for the role and he is unclean. This is exactly what Satan wants. And the thing is, it's not just bad luck. We can't just say, oh man, Joshua blew it and now the rest of us are done for. Zechariah knows this. It's a vision that he gets. If Zechariah had, had woken up and said, hey, uh, I had a vision and you were in it. You were standing there with Satan there to accuse you. Would you guys feel comfortable with that? I wouldn't. If he came to me and said, Pete, we got a vision, you're in it. Uh, not only would I have a soiled garment on, I'd probably have a pair of pants to match if you get my drift. Like, it, it would be a problem. I, would not be, I actually asked my mom, because I'm like, she hasn't done anything wrong. Would she be comfortable with this? And she said, of course not. No way. Um, and that's why Joshua doesn't even say a word to defend himself, because he knows he can't. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we're in that same position. 
So it kind of brings us to, if we're in a court of law and we're being accused and we know that we are guilty, what's our reaction going to be? Um, we might, what's, you know, what would your first response? Mine might be to try and hide something uh, as much as I could. So it kind of makes me think of when I, when I was a kid, I rode my bike as fast as I could in my parents' garage. I didn't realize that you could run into drywall. Ran into the drywall, broke it. And so I took a dry board that I knew my dad didn't use and I put it right in front of that and I walked away. Um, and I kind of took this as a tip from, from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. What they do is, it says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. That's not really a great plan, though, if you think about it. Because you know that stuff's still there, and you're constantly looking over your shoulder. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no rest in that. And if we extend the garment analogy, it, it becomes a disguise, not a solution. So that doesn't work. We might try and sh- uh, shift the spotlight or, or rationalize it and say, it's not really big. Yeah, it's, it's dirty, but it's not as dirty as, as that guy or as that guy. But just pushing that off, and again, this is something we see Adam and Eve do. Adam goes, no, 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 the woman, she made me do it. The woman goes, no, 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 that's the serpent. It's his fault. But just doing that by comparison does not make your garment clean. doesn't make it cleaner, really, even. So that's not there. Just pointing out everybody else's garment is dirty. Yours is still dirty. So then I come to, okay, if I, if I can't do either of those things, let me work it off. Yes, it's dirty. Yes, it's here. So is that, guys. I can work this off, though. Let me do some good deeds that outweigh the bad that I have done, and then we're, give me a work release program. Give me something. I can do this. Uh, the prophet Isaiah sees this coming, and he uses very similar language to Zechariah. When he says in Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So this is partly because we don't understand the depth of sin if we're realistic about it. Um, We always kind of say, no, we we can work this off. But Paul says the wages of sin, what that earns, it's death. That's not something that you can just work off. You don't have an extra life to spare. It's kind of like saying, all right, let me just spray some cologne or some perfume on top of this and hope that that come out well. What's underneath is still there. It's still a problem. That's why the message of God's Bible from Genesis to Revelation is not, yes, you're broken, yes, you're sinful, but just work hard enough and we'll get you there. Be good enough and you'll be okay. That may be the message of most of the world's religions. It is not the message of the Bible, ever. It's always talking about a better way. You're spiritually sick, And so is your high priest, so you're in trouble. You can't work this off. Your sins are like filthy rags to me. Your good deeds are like filthy rags to me as well. So, thankfully, the passage continues because God has a better answer than we can come up with on our own. So we pick this up in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord with filthy garments. And the angel said to him, uh, and to those who were standing before him, remove those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So what just happened here? I want to call your attention to three things. Um, first, the Lord, and notice already we've gone from the angel of the Lord to the Lord, and they'll switch back and forth between this 
this passage, the Lord doesn't deny that Joshua is dirty and filthy. In fact, I, I think he escalates the situation, if anything. He's not saying, I don't see it. Uh, he's saying, this is a brand that I've plucked from the fire. This is a stick that if left in that fire would be consumed as if to consume the impurities in it, the fire would burn all of that up. But he is reaching in and taking that stick out. So, this is, the other thing that it calls out is this is a singular sin. He says, the inequity, the sin, not the sins. And it's not because Joshua has only done one thing wrong. It's because there is a deeper thing than, than just the actions. Um, but it is the, the nature that we have. Um, that's why when Paul talks about sin to the Corinthians, he says of all sinners, those who live for themselves instead of God. That is the indictment. It's not that you've done something wrong, you've stolen, you've broken one of the Ten Commandments, you rode your bike into your dad's garage in the wrong way. It's that you are a sinner. You know, you don't, um, you don't become a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And that's what the God is getting at in this passage. Ezekiel speaks to this same metaphor, also with clothes. Uh, and, and it shows the depth of the relationship that's been broken here. I'm going to read from Ezekiel 16, where God speaks of his bride, Jerusalem. I entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrist, a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, beautiful crown on your head. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted your beauty, and you played the prostitute because of your renown, and you lavished your whoring on any passerby. Pretty strong language. Um, that's the seriousness of sin. It's not just breaking a few of His laws. It's breaking up with God as one might do with infidelity in a marriage. Here again, we see God present His bride with a beautiful gown, a wedding gown, and she uses it to play the harlot. Her gown is just as soiled as Joshua's is, and just as soiled as our own is, if we're honest with ourselves and stand before the Lord. Uh, this is a universal condition um, that God lays out for man. Um, and you can see Paul kind of weaves a bunch of Old Testament passages together when he gives the following description of us. Buckle up. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path a ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a pretty picture of us, right? That's wonderful. I'm not sure which I prefer, this or the soiled garment. Um, and it also makes me think if anyone says that man wrote the Bible, I would ask why. We come out terrible. Everybody looks awful. Um, but that's kind of the point here is God is not just about to look the other way with Joshua and say, okay, I love you, man. It's all right. Why don't you come into my presence anyway and we'll deal with this? Because that, again, would not be dressing Joshua appropriately. That would be a costume, not his. And it's not really what true forgiveness is about. 
True forgiveness is not about ignoring the damage that has been done or overlooking it. That's denial. That is not forgiveness. And God has something real at work for us in this passage. And that's what brings us to the second point. Is that God rebukes Satan instead of Joshua. Why, why would he do this? Satan's not wrong about his opinion of Joshua, but he's wrong about a great many other things. And God is not surprised by the sin of Joshua. This is not new evidence brought into the courtroom. He has known this. It's been the plan from the beginning. So what's the deal? Why does he rebuke Satan? The Lord tells him, I have chosen Jerusalem. I've chosen them. He says, they may be unfaithful, but they are mine. And I love them. I will make a way for them. I will remove them from the fire. And we will deal with it. Um, and we might ask, did you just see that resume of us? Have you read those passages, God? Why would he do this? Then we can turn to Psalm 18, where he tells us he rescues us because he delights in us. It is entirely from him. And that gives us security. But it still brings us to the problem of how can he delight in us when we are so sinful? He can't ignore it. It's there. It's real. And that brings us to the third point that a great exchange has taken place. His gross, disgusting, excrement-covered garment is taken off of him, and he's given another one. All that sin, it's, it's no longer part of his identity. It's not the way he's presented before the angel of the Lord, before God. It's gone. And this also takes away Satan's case. He's saying he's sinful. Yeah, he is, but, but now he's declared righteous. Because look at his garment, it is pure and perfect. Joshua has still done nothing in word or in deed. He did not even change that garment. It was changed for him. He's just there. Um, but it shows that if we're going to look at true forgiveness, true forgiveness is not ignoring it, but it's paying the debt that was due you. Let me tell you a little bit of a story to kind of illustrate this. I had a buddy of mine who was like, hey, why don't you come over and I want to teach you how to ride a, a dirt bike, like a motorized dirt bike. I was not really excited about this, but I went anyway. And he goes, oh, do you drive a stick car? I said, yeah, I drive a stick car. He goes, same deal. Here's the clutch, here's the gas, here's the brake, you pop it in gear this way, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, uh, okay. And he goes, all right, you're off, you're off and running. And so I do what you normally do in a stick car. I give it a little gas, and then I pop it in gear. This is not what you do on a motorcycle or on a dirt bike. That's how you pop a wheelie on a motorcycle or a dirt bike, which I did not know, but I found out very quickly. So this thing pops up while I'm on it. My feet jump out to the side because I don't know what else to do. And then I'm holding on to the gas while this thing's in gear. So as it goes, it is spinning out from under me. The harder I try, the harder I work, the worse situation I am in. It just has, so my brain finally catches up. And I go, I'm, this is a losing battle. I let go. And the bike spins off and smashes into his car. It's wonderful. <laughs> I, I took this guy's two possessions and I just crashed them together. And I'm, I'm devastated. Uh, and I'm like, uh, let, me, let me help. He goes, dude, it's, it's not a problem. It's forgiven. Don't worry about it. I go, oh, I mean, I, I appreciate that. But let me, let me pay for the damage. Let me pay for a bike tune-up. And he goes, I said it was forgiven. You don't, you don't get to pay for anything. And I was like, well, I get you. You've forgiven me, but let me pay. He goes, no, that's the point of forgiveness. I pay the cost. You do not. That's what forgiveness is. I was chatting about this with, with Pastor Mike. And he goes, yeah, forgiveness cost you the right to get even. And I really like that. You know? The forgiver always pays 
on behalf of the forgiven. That has to be the way. And that's what happened to that filthy garment. It's not just, oh man, let's get this off and throw it in the trash. No, that, that's still there. It still exists. It has to be paid for. So what happened? Who could pay the penalty for our sin? Let's revisit that title of the angel of the Lord. This was a guy, again, a, a, a way for God to be interacting with His people and yet remain clean in the midst of their sin. So that they could see God and live, to quote Hagar again. Alec Moiter puts it this way, and I love it. There's only one other in the Bible who is identical with and yet distinct from the Lord. Who is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of His outreaching mercy. The angel of the Lord can only be appreciated when understood as an appearance of Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Paul follows this language um, and this metaphor explicitly. Paul writes to the to church in Corinth, for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus took that excrement-covered garment that was our sin, and put it on, and He paid the penalty for it. And He took the, which, if you recall, is a branch plucked from the fire. He, he died the death that we deserved to die. But that's not the end of the exchange. He lived a perfect life, and He gives that to us. We put that on. And we are in front of God in a courtroom with Satan by our side, and we are not the one who is rebuked. That is beautiful. This is the message of the Bible. Again, we think, wait, is this New Testament, Old Testament? doesn't matter. This is the message of the Bible. Because we see Paul say this over and over again. To the Galatians, he says, And all who have been united in Christ with baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. To the Romans, he says the same thing. Put on Christ. To the Colossians, put on your new nature. Be renewed as you yearn to know your Creator and become like Him. To the Ephesians, put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed. Think about Adam and Eve. When they were kicked out of the garden, uh, God could have left them in their fig leaves and said, good luck, I hope that goes okay. But He gave them clothes. Now, he had access. He could have made them anything. He could have made them nice, cotton, breathable, all weather, ready to roll out there. But he didn't do that. He killed an animal and clothed them with it. That was intentional. He did that because he was showing them something had to die to cover you and your sin. Death is, is I mean, that's, that's it. That's a big deal, and we need to understand that. When we're clothed with Christ, as mentioned before, we put on that identity. That's how we are seen. Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller puts it this way, and again, I love it. To say that Christ is our clothing is to say that in God's sight, we are loved because of Jesus' work and salvation. When God looks at us, He sees His sons because He sees His Son. The Lord Jesus has given us His righteousness and His perfection to wear. So when we are convicted, when we feel the weight of our sin and our wrongdoings, don't try and rationalize that. Don't try and hide it. Don't try and blame it. Submit yourself to the mercy of the court. 
That's our only option. And we have a God. That's what He wants us to do. He knows that we're sinful. That's not a surprise. He wants us to, to fall on our knees and say, I can't handle this, but I know that you can. And that's His intent throughout the entire message of the Bible. That is the way for us to be presentable before God. Keller extends the analogy here when he says, Jesus Christ is the judge of all the earth who came for the first time not with a sword in His hands, but with nails through His hands. Not to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. Jesus Christ is the judge who was judged so that all who believe can face future judgment on that day with confidence. On that day, because we are pardoned, He will be able to end all evil without ending us. It's right in line with that The Angel of the Lord title. And again, I would challenge you this morning, if you're not there, know that your sin, Jesus says, let me pay that. Give that to me. Do it today. That's the only option that's viable that we have. And this has been God's plan since the very beginning. The amazing thing to me is that this is not the end of the vision. I just want to lay down and say, man, I'm so glad that my sin is Christ and His righteousness is mine. But it continues. Uh, So let's pick it up in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. I love the flow of this passage because what's Joshua standing already? He's in pure vestments. Only then is he told how to behave in life. It kind of reminds me, uh, I had a a friend at work who kind of came up to a a bunch of us at lunch. He's like, man, don't you think Christianity is ridiculous? It's like this great brainwashing technique where you get your kids to follow all the rules even when you're not around because there's this great God in the sky and he's going to punish you if you do the wrong thing. And everybody kind of looked at me because they knew that I believed in this apparent brainwashing scheme. And uh, I just kind of took a, a cue from Zechariah. I said, that sounds like the worst brainwashing technique in, in the history of the world. Have you read the Bible? All it does is talk about forgiveness. It says if, if you screw up, God still loves you, still cares for you, and he will pay the penalty himself. Why, why would you use that to brainwash your children? That doesn't make any sense. But what it tells is that God loves us like a father who says he's going to provide for you even when you screw up. I would much rather have that message. And that is the message of the Bible. And so here we have Joshua and he's not told this is the condition for the clothes that you wear. That's done. The iniquity is removed. But now he said, now that you have this, now that you know what I've done to give this to you, live it out. Don't end there. Don't stop. We oftentimes memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and kind of gloss over 10. It's, it's a passage that says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of you as a gift of God. It's not from your works so that no one may boast. But 10 continues that. It says you are His handiwork. You are prepared in advance for good deeds that you should live and walk in them. We forget that a lot. Uh, we need to walk in that to share the good news of what we have done, that has been done to us and to live it out. And that's why we are called signs of the branch. The branch, again, is an Old Testament way to proclaim Jesus. Uh, Both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about the branch 
of David, the Messiah King who would come. I mean, it's, it's all that same message. Uh, and if you'll notice, the, the passage also talks about the iniquity. Uh, later on, he'll say, I've removed, I will remove the iniquity in a single day of my people. In a single day. He says, I will remove. It's, it's future tense, but I'm like, didn't he already have the garment removed? He's calling forward to one day when Jesus hung on a cross, paying our sin, giving us life. Calling forward to that one day. And so we are called to be a presentation of that. Which makes me think, sometimes the default culture of the church is prideful. We can be seen as holier than thou. Uh, we can be seen as judgmental. If you don't follow our rules, we don't want you in our house. That's not the Bible's message at all. Um, really, we should be the most humble people in the world. Because we are people, did you read those verses about us? I mean, it's ridiculous. We are we are covered in sin. We are covered in excrement. And yet God loved us and pulled us out. How can we not extend forgiveness to those around us? How can we not be humble when our Savior humbled Himself to enter into the sewer on our behalf? We have to live that out that way. I have a lot of pride. I've got to confess that. I've got to get this out. I'm preaching this message more to myself. Sorry, guys. Of I need to let that go and realize how much Jesus loves me. I, I can unveil my dirty laundry to you guys. Like, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm sinful with this. That's what we're called to do as a church. Not that we have our acts together, but that our Savior has saved us and we need to continue to walk in that. So it kind of brings us to our takeaway for today. Our true Sunday best is not found in presenting ourselves well, but in presenting Christ well. That's our job as a church. I'll say it one more time. Our true Sunday best is not found in presenting ourselves well, but in presenting Christ well. It's about saying how great He is as a Savior. But we are called to live in that charge. We're called to live. This isn't just theology. This isn't just something that we learn and write down in a notebook and go home. We're called to pour ourselves out because Jesus poured Himself out for us. This, this can't be theology. It has to be lived. We've got to proclaim it. He was stripped at the cross of his purple sash and we were clothed. He was humbled so we can be humble. He forgave so we can forgive. We can serve because he served us. We can be sacrificial because he was so sacrificial with us. Let's worship him for that. Let's love our God and our neighbor in the security to know that we are clothed in Christ and that's how we are seen. That should let us spend our whole lives on the world if we believe that. If that sinks from our mind into our actions as, as we're called to be assigned and to live that out. And that helps us to worship God more. Even when we sin and we fall and we break. We come back to Him. When we close this morning, we're going to sing uh, a song called Before the Throne of God Above. It's, a, uh, it's an old hymn, uh, and I get to play the role of Evan a little bit where I prime you guys for the song. Shh, don't tell him. Um, but it, it's, it's basically written, it seems like it comes right out of Zechariah 3. Uh, the band can come out if you guys want. That's fine. Um, I'm going to read this, the first couple verses because it's, it's just so beautiful to put this together as a way that we can worship God. I'm going to read this now. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, 
whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, I see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we give so many thanks for the work that you have done that is completed on the cross. We give thanks that you can look on us as pardoned because you see your Son. Uh, we give thanks that that is your single soul message replete through Scripture. Uh, and we want to put our trust and faith in that. We want to put our actions in that. We want to worship you through that, Lord. Um, so in all this, we want to proclaim how great our Savior is. Help us to do that this morning and with the rest of our lives. In your name we pray.